Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt about his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Jesus was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. It was after John was put in prison that Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like whoever gave me the Winnie the Pooh mug. Thank you. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Good news. Another phrase, another translation of gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God. What is the good news? It's something that we as Christians talk about a lot, sing about a lot. We use the words good news and gospel without even thinking about it, really, to be honest. So what, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Say that sometime over the course of when we're reading through the Gospel of Mark together, you're a keen student, and you take your Bible with you to a coffee shop. You have it opened, and your Bible tends to be the one with the red letters in it. 
and a curious person at the very close table next to you leans over, sees what you're reading, sees the red letters, sees the name Jesus, and after rolling their eyes a little bit, leans in and says, you believe that? You believe that stuff? So, so tell me, tell me, tell me, what is this good news you people keep talking all about? What is it? Tell me. What would your answer be? What would you say? How do you define the gospel? If you had to write down an answer right now, what would it be? If you had to pin it down in words, what would your definition of the gospel be? Now, if you took pastor's class in the fall, you know what I'm going to do next. Do you have a sermon journal? Do you have a blank part of your bulletin? Do you have a pen handy? I'm going to give you a little over 60 seconds to actually write down your definition. Okay, I'll give you 30 seconds to think, and I'm going to give you 60 seconds to write down. So, grade four to six, you have your binders. Open those up. You have tons of blank space in there. Anybody without an awesome binder, you just have to pick up your journal or a bulletin. And if you're not the writing type, I'm going to trust that you are taking this seriously and you are writing something in your head. Agreed? Okay. If you're a writer, you got your paper and your pen ready. 60 seconds on the clock. I know this feels like school. It it's not a pop quiz. You won't be graded. I promise. You won't even have to share this. <sighs> 60 seconds. What is the gospel? How do you define the good news? Okay, pencils down. For those of you who did it, either crafting one in your head or actually writing it down, was it harder or easier than you expected? Right? It's something that we talk about all the time, gospel, good news. When you define it, you realize how big it is. Because I bet if I invited you to share, and I won't, rest assured, if I invited you to share with the people in your pew or those around you, you're not going to have the same definition. There's going to be variation. I mean, there's going to be common themes. There's going to be a constellation of similarities. But our vocabulary, the way we express it, what we stress, what's important to us, what captures our imagination and gets in our definition of what the gospel is, it's going to be different across this room. It's going to be different across a pew. It's going to be different from the person sitting next to you. Because the way we define the gospel, what captures us, what 
what transforms us, what, what gets us, is, is shaped by our life stories. It's, it's shaped by our theology. It's shaped by what we've learned. Now, maybe you think it's, it's obvious. Maybe you want to push back on that and say, it's, how could anyone else have anything different than what I wrote down? Because it's the gospel, duh. Except maybe what came to your mind was Jesus forgives my sins. Gospel truth, right? That, that's a right answer. But what about the person sitting next to you who their definition of the gospel is pointing to God's reconciling work with all creation through Jesus Christ? That's gospel truth too, isn't it? That's true. So I want to go back to verse 1 of Mark. What did we read? The beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What do we each hear when we read that verse? Because the first time we read through, we think, well, duh, obviously, good news, gospel, got it, move on. Verse 1 is the easiest. But you realize what we unpack, what we bring to that first verse can be different, can be nuanced, can have variations. What is the good news that Mark is talking about, this gospel? Because he's not meaning just the pages that he's writing, the book, the genre. He's talking about the good news. Because you also have in verse 15, the verse 1 and verse 15 are, are the framing of this introduction of Mark's gospel. And at the end, you have the good news as well. But you have Jesus proclaiming it this time. Verse 15 is Jesus preaching his first sermon. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. The good news. This portion of Mark's gospel that we read, the first 15 verses, it's the prologue to the whole story that he's telling. It's almost like these first 15 verses are like a cold opener to a film. You know when you don't get the credits, you don't get any orientation, you just get the, the screen goes on and you're in the story, right? You're in whatever the director wants to show you, tell you, tell you what's important. You're completely just immersed in the story immediately. The first 15 verses of Mark are, are that. We're just thrown into the action, thrown into the story. Mark throws us into the wilderness. Our, our NIV translation talks about the desert, the desert region. It, it's all language for the wilderness. He throws us into empty hills and heat and sand. He throws us into an image of a river cutting through all of that. He throws us into an image of a fiery prophet just plunging people into the water, one after another after another, and, and he pans crowds on the riverbanks waiting to be plunged into that water. All the while, he's yelling back to the shore about repentance and confession. And Mark gives us a baptism, a vision, a trial, and the first sermon that Jesus preached. Repent. Believe the good news. 
He lays the groundwork here. He's doing a lot in these first 15 verses. He's laying the groundwork for the rest of his story, what we will explore together over the next several weeks. And for him, it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God. And what follows, if you remember the Gospel of Mark, if you've read it recently, if you've ever studied it, throughout the story that follows, you, we as readers, are witnesses to Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the good news, not only in what he says, but in what he does. And over 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 again, we are going to see people completely misunderstand the good news that he is both speaking and doing throughout this gospel account. It could be the crowds, it could be the religious leaders, everyone's clueless when it comes to the content of the good news. Even his disciples, even those closest to him, the, the ones who walk with him, follow him, have, have pledged themselves to him, who listen, you would think closely, but they still don't understand. Because throughout Mark's gospel, as we'll come to see, the disciples are shaped by their own understanding of the good news, of the gospel. When Jesus spoke and taught and preached sermons about the good news, they heard what they wanted to hear. Victory, triumph, power, the Romans being brought down. They heard the good news of Messiah, Jesus, being the one who would lead them into a fight and be victorious. They would no longer be an oppressed people. Their land would no longer be occupied. The Messiah was going to take care of all of that. That's what the good news meant. Victory. And so their understanding of the good news shaped what they heard in Jesus. And so when he spoke about vulnerability and sacrifice and suffering, that can't be the good news. Because <laughs> the Messiah is a winner. The Messiah is not a loser. How the disciples defined the good news shaped the kind of disciples they were. And we are no different. If we define the gospel, and I know none of you did, if you define, no, not that you didn't define, you didn't define the gospel this way. If we define the gospel as a one-way ticket to heaven, then we're not going to be the kind of disciple that cares about the world we live in, about creation. Because it doesn't matter, heaven does. So we're not, we're not going to really care for the land around us. Because we got that one-way ticket to heaven. We're out of here. See ya. If we define the gospel as a promise of continued blessings, material blessings, then we're going to be the kind of disciple that loves our possessions. Because that's a sign of God's favor. And that means we're going to be the kind of disciple that judges other people who don't have them because that means God does not favor them. So their poverty, their challenge, whatever, they deserve it. Because wealth is God's blessings and favor. You don't have it, too bad. If we define the gospel only in terms of my sin, my eternal life, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
only in those terms. We're, we're going to be the kind of disciple who goes it alone. Who doesn't understand the community of God's people, covenant, or church. Who doesn't understand the way God calls us to love one another and live with each other. If we define the gospel only in terms of justice and righting all the wrongs that we see, then we're going to be the kind of disciple who misses out on the gift of grace. The kind of disciple who exhausts themselves, trying to earn their salvation, to make salvation happen by the work we do, by the social action we take, by the changes we are able to make. Because how we define the good news, how we define the gospel shapes the kind of disciple we are and the kind of disciple we're becoming. So think of your definition. Think of how you define the gospel. Your emphasis, your stress, what you said, what you included, what you didn't include. Where are your blind spots? Where are the strengths of your definition of the gospel and where are its weaknesses? What kind of disciple are you based on how you define the gospel? If Mark is laying the groundwork for the rest of his story, here in verses 1 through 15, then what he includes here sets us up to understand the rest of where he's going, to unpack what he means by the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God. We get themes and meaning and foreshadowing here in these first 15 verses. So what do we get here in the middle of the wilderness? What does Mark offer up in his cold opening of a film? The very first thing that Jesus does in this part of his gospel is he joins the crowds streaming towards the Jordan River. He joins the crowds that are streaming from every city and town, every village and farm to the banks of the Jordan River. He stands on the banks of the river just like everyone else, slowly making his way forward, being jostled, shoved, surrounded by people like us. <laughs> people who came to the river lost and hopeful, Doubting and unsure, scared and cynical, some having a bit of a laugh at everybody else, and some simply curious to see what all the hype is about. And finally, after baptism, after baptism, after baptism, after baptism of the crowd around him, Jesus reaches John, and he gets plunged under the water just like everybody else. And in the moment that Jesus breaks through the surface of the water, 
He sees, and only Jesus sees in Mark's gospel. Do you notice this? John doesn't see it. The crowds don't see it. This vision is for Jesus alone. He comes, he breaks the surface of the water, and he looks up and he sees the heavens being torn apart. And a spirit, and the spirit descending like a dove. And a voice calling to him. You are my son whom I love. And with you I am well pleased. And that's a good moment, right? It's all, it's all good after that. It's nice and it's about God's peace and love and presence and nothing bad happens when God tells you he loves you, right? It's not the story. It's not what happens, either here in the gospel or in our own lives. Because the same spirit that just descended like a dove, to quote another preacher, turns into a hawk. Getting Jesus in its, in its talons and just hurling him into the desert. Even deeper into the desert. So a dove becomes a hawk and throws Jesus into the desert. Into confrontation with Satan. And if you think that's too forceful, our, our NIV translates that the Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert. It, it, it's, it's like, go ahead, it's okay. The Spirit sent Jesus. And the Greek is the word to throw. So the image you get in the Greek is that the Spirit just took Jesus and just threw him from his baptism into the desert to meet Satan. So it took him from the safety of words of love and belonging from his father and just like ripped him from that and threw him into the desert even more. Into challenge, into confrontation, into trial. In his baptism, Jesus is reminded of who he is. That he is God's son. Beloved. But that does not keep him from harm or trial or challenge. In fact, his baptism leads directly into confrontation with evil, with Satan, with temptation. But he's not alone. He's not abandoned when he's thrown into the desert. Mark tells us that Jesus was with the wild animals. He was attended by angels. And he tells us that little note about wild animals. A man being alone in a place, being tempted by Satan. And that should make us think of Adam. Of Adam and Eve. Alone with the wild animals. Tempted by Satan. But unlike our first Adam, Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't falter. Jesus doesn't sin. Instead, he emerges from the wilderness with a message, a purpose, loved by his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim through word and deed the good news of God. Why does this all happen in the wilderness? Why does this all happen in the desert? Why does Mark place his prologue, his introduction, his 
opening understanding of where he will go in his story, why does it start in the wilderness? Why does it happen there? Throughout scripture, the wilderness is, is, a, is a metaphor, is a place, a place of waiting, of preparation, of needing to be rescued, needing to be saved by God. And the wilderness is always the place where God meets his people. So the good news, the gospel, starts in the wilderness because that's where we are. That's where we are. Jesus goes down to the Jordan to be baptized, not because he needs to repent or confess. It's not why he's there. But he's there because that's where his people are. With the crowds, knowing their sin, waiting and hoping for forgiveness, waiting to be rescued. And, and Jesus goes deeper into the wilderness to confront Satan, not because he needs to prove himself to his father. He's already been told that he's loved and God is pleased with him. It's not about proving himself. But because we need him to succeed where Adam failed. We need him to win so that he can free us from the bondage of sin and death. And Jesus comes out of the wilderness proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, because in him, the Messiah, the Son of God, the kingdom is near, and the time has indeed come, and the Messiah has appeared. The good news, the gospel, starts in the wilderness here. Because Mark is telling us Jesus is our way through the wilderness. Because of Jesus, the Son of God, in the waters of our own baptism, we hear the Father's voice saying to each one of us, You are my child, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Because of Jesus, the Son of God, in our own trials and temptations and confrontations, we know that we are not alone, that we are not abandoned. And because of Jesus, the Son of God, in our own lives and in our discipleship, we are called to proclaim both in word and deed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of his kingdom both now and forevermore. People of God, how we define the good news shapes the kind of disciple we are. So as we wrestle with the gospel of Mark over these next few weeks together, as we read and follow Jesus the story, as we keep our eyes on him, may the same Holy Spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism move in our lives as we travel through this gospel story to shape, to clarify, to prune, to deepen, to challenge 
our understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior, our brother, our King, and our way through the wilderness. May we listen. May we be changed. May we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen?